The name Fat Leonard has become synonymous with corruption. Leonard Glenn Francis operated the biggest bribery scheme the Navy has ever experienced. Under house arrest for years awaiting final sentencing, Leonard slipped away last month after cutting off his ankle bracelet. Now caught in Venezuela, what's going to happen to him? We get some analysis from attorney Anthony Kuhn, managing partner of Tully Rinky. Anthony, good to have you back. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So he is in Venezuela. Let's start with the question of, can we get them back from that particular country that we don't get along so well with? Uh, possibly. So I think we're going to get them back. It's just a matter of uh, what that's going to look like. So a couple different possibilities there. First, we do have an extradition treaty in place between us and Venezuela. But the issue is that our, our relationship with the current Venezuelan government is strained, to say the least. So at this point, we are hoping that they're going to honor the extradition treaty. But it could be as easy as just negotiating some type of return. Uh, we can negotiate around the treaty. There's no there's no reason to make this last months and possibly a year if, if we don't have to. And let alone that there really hasn't been a total reckoning by the Navy of this 10, 15 year episode of Fat Leonard. What about the reckoning for how the heck he got away from house arrest, which, by the way, is a luxurious house. We should all have such house arrest. It was. Uh, and, you know, just looking back, I mean, as you said, this is the largest scandal in, in naval history involving, we believe, more than 60 admirals and hundreds of senior Navy officers. Uh, the, the courts have already determined in the past that this individual had been overpaid at least $35 million for contracting that he had done for the United States Navy. And he did this through forming relationships with these individuals, these these admirals and, and senior officers. He would bribe them with money, prostitutes, tickets to concerts, travel, all these extravagant gifts. And in exchange for that, they would provide classified information and in some cases even steer ships to his ports so that he could use his company to perform what, what is called husbanding and at port services for these ships in Malaysia and in that general area. And he would be overpaid. He would he would submit invoices and, and to the tune of, as, as you know, tens of, of millions of dollars more than what he should have. Ironically, he was captured because he had a mole. NCIS, an agent, one time agent of the year was his paid mole within the Naval Investigation Services. And they fed, the Navy fed false information to that agent that then was given to Fat Leonard. And he put himself in a position based on that information to be captured. So that's how we captured him. He goes through the process. He pleads guilty in 2015 to a number of different charges. And he's looking at 25 years in prison. He comes down with cancer. The judge had previously denied requests for bond because the judge was concerned that he was a flight risk. Clearly, he's a flight risk. Sure. And, and we should point out this all took place in the United States, his trial and house arrest. It wasn't somewhere correct. over there because he's from Malaysia originally. Correct. He's a, he's a U.S. contractor. And this all took place in the United States. But he put himself in a position in the United States to be captured based on that information that was leaked. So he was tried in the United States and convicted. And well, he, he pleaded guilty. And uh, that was in 2015. So uh, he's, sent, he's ready to be sentenced, and he comes down with cancer. So he is then placed on house arrest while he's dealing with cancer. And as you said, a very extravagant house arrest. And as we know now, the judge was very concerned with any potential flight risk. So the judge actually directed that he be under constant monitoring. And clearly, he was not under constant monitoring. As, as witnesses have come forward and said, they had U-Haul trucks at his house the past few days before he fled. And they loaded up all of his things. and They took his things somewhere. And then he cut the bracelet off and disappeared 
uh, and has gone through, we think, three or four countries to get to Venezuela, where he was captured on his way to uh, what we believe would have been Russia. We're speaking with Anthony Kuhn, managing director of the law firm Tully Rinky. And let's presume for a moment he eventually gets back into what I presume to be federal custody in the United States. What do we do with him? I mean, the sentencing was going to happen, but isn't the escape another crime? It is. There is a federal statute that deals with individuals who illegally take flight to avoid prosecution. Uh, So most likely that's what what he will be. uh, He'll receive additional charges under that statute and potentially others. That is, it is a U.S. Code 18, U.S. Code 1073. And again, it deals with unlawful flight to avoid prosecution or testimony. And in this case, it's prosecution. He's been prosecuted. He's already looking at 25 years in prison. He knows that. He's, he, I believe he would have been sentenced this week, and he fled immediately prior to that sentencing to try to get to a country where he wouldn't be extradited back to the United States. And another question arises, and this is common for lawyers, but for normal people outside of the legal realm, what took so long from the conviction to the sentencing? Why doesn't sentencing happen a week later and he would have been in prison? Well, that's a good question. Uh, There's a couple of different issues that could be at play. Uh, As you know, individuals have due process. They have the right to a speedy trial. But sometimes there are ongoing investigations. Sometimes it's the legal team itself that slows things down. In this case, I would expect that the cancer diagnosis and the treatment for cancer slowed things down. And then you know, there's hundreds of people wrapped up in this investigation. So we've all seen it on TV. You know, they they turn one guy to try to get the next guy to try to get the next guy. If they're in a hurry and they prosecute all those individuals quickly, then they might lose leads and they might not be able to capture everybody. So they're trying to cast a broad net and capture as many individuals involved in this as possible. And as we know now, there are hundreds or more than 100 naval officers and Marine Corps officers that are wrapped up in this. And this goes all the way up the chain. I mean, there were retired admirals, which is the equivalent of an army general, uh, that were caught up in this, that were brought back in and prosecuted. In fact, one of them was actually the director of naval intelligence, one of the admirals that was caught up in this, along with one of his deputies. And uh, it's important that we all know that this wasn't something that he was charged with or something that they believe he was caught up in while he was the director of naval intelligence. They believed that he had committed acts prior to receiving that promotion. But they came back to haunt him. And uh, eventually, you know, he was wrapped up in the investigation as well. Sure. And as far as we know, getting back to Fat Leonard himself, this wasn't criminal malingering, this cancer or whatever was wrong with him. He really was a sick man for a while there. Correct. I believe it was kidney cancer. So he was very sick and he was going through treatment, which is why he was placed on house arrest. Obviously, it would be very difficult to treat a condition like that in a prison. They don't necessarily have the facilities to be able to do that properly. So he could conceivably then come back and sort of put on an act like Vincent Gigante, the great mob boss who faked mental illness and acted senile and so forth to avoid trial. But it became well known that this was not the case. He could attempt to do that. I mean, it, it could, the, the reality is it could take months to get him back here. You know, we hope that it's going to be a quick negotiation and uh, the Venezuelan government is going to work with us, which historically we haven't worked together. You know, this isn't this, these aren't two administrations that have worked together in the past. So uh, these police agencies don't work together well or haven't in the past. So we're hoping that we can have a positive negotiation here and get him returned to the United States. But once he is returned to the United States, you bring up a good point. It's a burden to taxpayers to uh, put him into a, an institution or a facility where we then have to provide all of these services 
Uh, it's a, it is a burden to taxpayers to be able to do that. And it's it's difficult for the facilities to treat a condition like that. Um, so there, unfortunately, there is the possibility that the judge is going to have to get creative on this one and figure out a way to have this individual in some form of house arrest again. But uh, it's highly unlikely given his, his history now and the concerns that were already in place. Because some of the accounts said that the local judge there had expressed worry that he could escape. And That's correct. She was very clear about that concern. Right. All right. So, again, fast forwarding, the sentencing then would, under normal circumstances, proceed once he's back here, and then a second trial would happen on the flight activities. I would expect that to happen. So uh, he'll return here, and he was already set for sentencing. So, you know, that, that case has worked itself out already. And as we know, he was looking at 25 years. So they've got plenty of time to figure out the additional charges and, and add to the 25 years. Uh, it's Obviously, it's there's a really good chance he's not going to live long enough to, to finish out that 25-year sentence, but there is the potential there for new charges as well. And a final question, as a one-time career military army officer, just being in the military and seeing this happen, having to deal with supply issues yourself, this must kind of make your blood boil, this whole long case. Oh, it made a lot of people's blood boil. So there are uh, checks and balances in place normally. And in this case, this case is unique because there was a 2006 whistleblower we now know came forward, and that was apparently not properly investigated, and this was allowed to continue. And then there were officers who raised flags and concerns uh, along the line saying, you know, this individual is being overpaid, but other officers who were senior ranking officers and were already being paid by uh, Fat Leonard uh, shut those concerns down and uh, allowed this to keep moving forward. In fact, we know that he was still receiving contracts while he was under investigation and he had received over $200 million in contracts. So this case has really turned the Navy on its head and they have changed the entire procurement process. They have changed vetting that they do and testing that they do for naval officers to include character and ethical questions and and testing. So it's really changed a lot of what goes on. And hopefully the measures that we have in place now will catch this type of nefarious activity in the future. Attorney Anthony Kuhn is managing partner of Tully Rinke. Thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. Anytime. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. 
Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation. But it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, 
I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I 
had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. This holiday, whether you're making a Baker's Simple Truth Turkey for 40 or a Murray's Baked Brie for two, Baker's has fast, fresh delivery and free pickup so you can make holiday meals that bring you all together to create memories that last. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Free pickup on orders of $35 or more. Restrictions may apply. Get more ways to save at the Buy 5 or More Save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone.